0: ill-equipped, and not uh, able to proclaim your sufficiencies. But by the righteousness of Christ imputed upon us, Lord, we are able to pr- proclaim that all the, cl- the glory is yours, Lord God. And uh, we just thank you for the opportunity. May your word go forth this morning, Father. You be glorified in what is said. May the light um, that shone among the shepherds be the same light, Lord, that shines among us today. And we pray, Lord, that you are with us now, that I'm a weak vessel, Lord, as I bring your word that um, you may be magnified, glorified, and boasted of greatly, now and forevermore. In your name we pray, amen. Good morning. So, I didn't do that bad a job last time, I'm here again. Um, I should say before we get into our text this morning, last week, if you weren't here, Ken mentioned there were eight possible um, sermons derived from the psalm he preached on last week. I'm here to tell you in complete transparency, I struggled to get one version of a sermon out of the text. I did not, uh, unfortunately, have the burden of eight options uh, that came from our text this morning, but nevertheless, uh, the sermon titled this morning is The Potency of Light, and if it's not on the screen, I believe there's a spelling error on the word potency, there might be two T's in it, so for all you grammatical um, individuals, we're good, how's that? I sound different now. (laughs) You can hear me. Um, So the sermon this morning is titled The Potency of Light. And if uh, you want to open your Bibles to Isaiah, we'll actually start in chapter 8, starting in verse 21, and I'll give you a minute to turn there. We'll be reading Isaiah 8, starting in verse 21, through Isaiah chapter 9 and through verse 7 let's stand for the reading of the word they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry and when they are hungry they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth but behold distress and darkness the gloom of anguish and they will be thrust into thick darkness So here we have this prophecy recorded by the prophet Isaiah 735 years before the birth of Christ. This prophecy was given to the people of God, the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, at a time of real transition in their life circumstance. They were moving from a time of political and social stability and economic security into a real time of uncertainty. And it was actually going to be a time of suffering and difficulty. So some context is needed here as a backdrop for our text this morning. Isaiah, when he received his commission from the Lord in chapter 6, it was about five years prior before the events we see here in Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. And this was the year that King Uzziah died. And he, like all the other faithful Jews, were going to wonder what was to happen, right? So anytime they had a change in kingship or in uh, political uh, arena, there was some concern. Uh, Uzziah and his son Jotham were reigning together. And there were times when the Jewish kings would, before their reign ended, their son would start a co-regency with them. So, and Jotham, as soon as Uzziah dies, is going to make his son Ahaz a co-regent with him. And Ahaz, if you remember, is an ungodly man. Um, so there is worry among the godly that they are going to be ruled by, for the first time in four generations, a wicked king right? An ungodly king, a wicked man. Ahaz is truly wicked. He is characterized in Second Kings chapter 16 as being like the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. So these kings, if you remember, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And Ahaz walked in the way of those kings of Israel and not in the ways of the kings of Judah or in the way of David. So there's this sense in which the godly know this is not good. And at 735 BC, five years Later, after Isaiah's commission, things have already begun to deteriorate significantly. Um, things were just kind of falling apart. There was this uh, feeling of pressure. They were being squeezed by the nations around them, particularly by the nations to the immediate north the northern kingdom of Israel, and this was the other kingdom of the Jews, which, if you remember, divided into two kingdoms. I already mentioned the southern kingdom of Judah, but we had the northern kingdom of Israel. So we have the ten tribes in the northern kingdom of Israel, the two tribes in the southern kingdom of Judah. And the kingdom of Israel is putting pressure on Judah to enter into this alliance with Assyria, right? And Assyria here is a wicked kingdom, a superpower of the day, so to speak. Assyria's intentions were to conquer this region completely and wholly. Um, This is the same country to which God had called Jonah to, and to that which he promptly fleed from. Uh, And Jonah had, humanly speaking, good reason not to go. Now, it wasn't good reason before God, and it wasn't good reason in light of God's call, but the fact is the Assyrians were bad. They were really pretty awful. Uh, Masters of warfare, elite warriors in and of themselves, but they were brutal In fact, incredibly brutal, especially in victory. If you resisted them and they defeated you, they made an example out of you and the leaders. They would um, impale you with a pole. And they would peel your skin away while you were on this pole. And you would hang there, impaled, filleted, basically just to die, most assuredly. And that was the message to the other nations around them. If you resist... This is what happens to you. This is what happens to the people who resist Assyria. They are terrible, wicked, bad people. So when Jonah gets the message to go to Nineveh, he's like, no thanks. Go the other way, right? Well, despite his attempt to sail to Tarshish, he arrives to the Ninevites under the most unlikely of scenarios, and we know that story. But the people repent. And these Assyrians now, this is about 100 and 150 Years later, after uh, Jonah, this is where we pick up. There was repentance, but it didn't take and last much more than a generation because the Assyrians are still a vastly evil people. So now they're pressing in on the kingdoms of the north, and the understanding of Judah is this, that they are a real and present danger. And Ahaz, at this point, has made a secret alliance with Assyria. So there's all kinds of wickedness going on. And what's happening, the faithful, the godly, they're getting keyed in. They're really picking up on this idea that times of great darkness are descending upon the people of God. So two ideas for you this morning. First one is a severe and somber darkness. And the second idea is a commanding and compelling light. All right, and then uh, some application, too, after the second idea. So I was describing all that's going on with the wickedness of Ahaz, the alliance of the northern kingdom. We have Arameans in here, mixing here against Judah. We have Edomites and Philistines. This is all in Second Kings uh, chapter 16, and you can read it on your own time. But all of this unrest, right? All of this upheaval, there's a sense of darkness that is encroaching and the inevitability of it that darkness is coming, We can't stop it. The Assyrians are on their way, marching. The footsteps, basically, hear the footsteps coming. That's what leads us into the end of chapter 8 that we just read this morning. And we will look upon the earth. So, this is God is going to bring suffering. What's going to happen? Some of the people are going to turn to God, and some of them are going to, and some are not, essentially. And the ones that don't turn to God will. And this is what we read in the end of the 8th chapter of Isaiah look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. The reality is the suffocating weight of the darkness that is there. And God chooses to give a vision to the people of what's going to happen in 700 years or a little over 700 years. So we have this. We have the Assyrians. Eventually, we're going to come in. Um, it, It was really waters up to the neck for Ahaz at this point. But they don't lose to the Assyrians. God will actually drive back the Assyrians at this point. But after that, we have the Babylonians, if recall. So the Babylonians actually conquered Judah, take them off into captivity for 70 years. And then after that, Persians. After that, Greeks. There's a brief time of some independence in there, but it's tumultuous, right? And then we have, uh, after that, we even have Romans. So we have Under these reigns of various kingdoms and at different levels at different times, varying degrees of darkness spiritually. We can identify and relate to much of what is written here in Isaiah, can we not? Especially when we think about our day, how things are going spiritually. There's this rapid decline into immorality and one that seems to accelerate with each passing day. So... I kind of thought about all the various things I could cite in terms of immorality. The list is long. One that struck me is the idea of autonomy. I use the word here to mean self-law, autos, namas. the very idea that you determine for yourself, right? You're not under anyone else's authority. So here today in our present time, we have this greater autonomy of gender where people are assuming the prerogative of God, right? How wicked, right? We would have the so-called determining rights to do assign who we are. And this is a whole other level of depravity. We see it in our culture. We see it in our time. So in this passage, he talks about what they were going through in Isaiah, times of Isaiah. And the words here used in chapter 8, verse 22, I want to highlight them darkness gloom and anguish okay darkness gloom and anguish darkness we all know what darkness is right the absence of light been in if you all gotten up in the middle of the night tried to navigate your home in the dark most of you would end up with a sore toe or banged up knee this is darkness. The, re- the revelation of God is becoming more and more suppressed. Evil was dominating the culture, so darkness was growing, and the darkness was real, and that darkness leads to gloom. We read that here at the end of chapter 8. It's interesting here that the word gloom in Hebrew can actually be at times translated as darkness, though here the difference is, although it can be interpreted as darkness, it tends to picture more of a darkness on the inside. Okay. So the effect that external darkness has on one's soul. It's darkness on the outside that moves into the soul. Okay, and so I'm, this sounds repetitious. You'll hear a lot of darkness and gloom. Thrust into thick darkness. Dark, dark, dark. The idea here that darkness is so prevalent, it's deepening, it's becoming palpable. You can feel it. And that leads to gloom of the soul for the people of God. Painful reality is that as believers, we can at times feel deep darkness, great darkness. And this is something that happens throughout history. And if we find ourselves in those times, if that time is now, the tendency is to have gloom, right? To have the external darkness begin to affect our souls, our hearts, so that we let the darkness lead us toward despair, to gloom to depression. How many of us get that phone call where we find out a loved one has a terminal disease? How many of us find ourselves in strife in our home or our jobs or our work or our relationships? There's despair. There's depression. It's easy to think that way. You just look around us at the deterioration of society, and more than that can be even the deterioration of the church, right? Stories of churches closing their doors, shutting down. This is gloom. This is external darkness filling the souls of the believers. And we just look at these things, and it really does affect us. And then this word anguish. Darkness, gloom, anguish. External darkness that presses into the gloom of our heart. And this anguish is a word here which picture, pictures an outward pressure that results in a strong internal motivation. Okay, it's the same word that we see, translated the same way in chapter 8, verse 22. If we flip the page in my Bible anyway, in uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Same translated word. But the idea here is to be in a narrow place. It means to be confined to Bound, restricted, okay, to be in a tight place that you can't get out of. To be pressed in and be pressured that you can't get away from it. So the darkness has become gloom and now it's pressing in and you feel trapped by it. That's the idea in this anguish. It makes you want to escape. makes you want to move. Get out from underneath of it. It's an internal desire to want to escape our circumstances. This is the anguish that they were pressed into. That's what he's describing here. That is the reality of what the people of God were experiencing. They were tempted to let the external darkness become gloom in their hearts and to lead to this unsettled anguish of the soul. I'm here to tell you this is not productive to the things of God. Brothers and sisters, this is not productive for the things of God. And we can be just like them. We need not sit around and meditate on evil, evil evildoers. But the wonder of the passage is that in the midst of these dire circumstances, God gives them a glorious news. They don't have to live in this gloom and anguish. They can live in light, in joy, and freedom. We have a clear progression in this text. It's a stark reversal. Remember, darkness that becomes gloom, which becomes the sense of bondage. So we have darkness, gloom, anguish. Let's look at what he does here in verse 1 of chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So if you remember, well, I'll share with you, maybe you don't remember at all. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, this was the northern regions of Israel. Okay? So this this was the very first boundary of Israel to be assailed by the Assyrians. They were the first ones to go into captivity, to be enslaved, to be warred against. So if uh, these tribes were taken off often in captivity by the Assyrians over and over and over and over again, darkness was probably something they they were used to. Anguish was a feeling that they became accustomed to, all right? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 4. And if anyone can't recite Matthew chapter 4 from memory, I'll read it for you. And those, uh, excuse me, that was chapter 3. And shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So where did our Lord go to when he began his ministry? Jerusalem? No, right? To Zebulun and Naphtali, the very region that was considered to be unworthy, in contempt, to be thought very little of, we see that the Lord consider of little value and contempt, but would be esteemed much. This had to confound the Jews, right? So if you were a devout Jew at this time, you were looking for a new property, you went on Zillow, you probably wouldn't pull up Naphtali or Zebulun, right? You'd probably want to find yourself in Jerusalem with all the other devout Jews. That was castoffs, the Gentiles, has the nobodies, People that are always falling to the wayside, the dark people. Where did our Lord go? He went and he resided in that which was contempt, that which was in darkness, gloom, and anguish. Because it goes from something of no value to something of infinite value, right? So when he goes into this land, it's transformed. Let's look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. We know this light to obviously be Christ, but let's look a little deeper into the notion of thick darkness. I haven't had enough. We'll talk more about darkness. Um, verse 2 is also read here as they that dwelt in the land of the shadow of death. This language does not apply alone to the notion of death itself. It's every hopeless sorrow is the shadow of the grave. Every hopeless sorrow that we have is a shadow of the grave. Every notion, every attempt to be just, every attempt to be fair and merciful, apart from God, death reigns supreme over human thought. Absolutely supreme. There is no so-called better times. There is no so-called Looking forward, which can come and comfort the weary heart of man and cure his grief. Over every city, every throne, over the groves of philosophy, over the gardens of pleasure, the same shadow, the same darkness is cast. We have the long dark shadow that falls over all of our pursuits and all the hopes of human life. And as we think of this, are we not encouraged by the prophet's words, a great light has come? the wondrous glory of the Savior's revelation here in Isaiah, none of us, and should I, should, and may I suggest, can overestimate. The season of Christmas is upon us, and we have all the trappings and hullabaloo nagging at us and inviting us to fix our eyes. I will admit for one that I, especially during this month, find myself easily fixated but I regret to say it's not with regard to Jesus incarnate, right? I'm drawn to all the hullabaloo of Christmas. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The man Christ Jesus, who would accomplish what we could not, are you astounded are you drawn to worship do you consider the enterprise of heaven worship forevermore the incarnation presents us God making a way for us through Jesus for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish shall not perish but have eternal life the incarnation gives us Jesus fully God and fully man, and fully able to understand our hurt, our struggles, our temptations, our darkness. This is the light. This is a commanding and compelling light for the believers. Hebrews 4 puts it this way, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And this incarnation sets in motion the plan for our hope for eternity, right? We deserve punishment, but receive forgiveness. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled unfading kept in heaven for you first peter chapter 1 verse 3 and 4 this gives us cause to be astounded right and this revelation indeed has changed the face of society and turned the weeping eyes of a weary world to look upon glory to look upon honor to look upon immortality to look upon eternal life this is the vision of Isaiah here in chapter 9 of the coming Messiah second idea this morning a commanding and compelling light darkness becomes light not just light but a great light so there's different kinds of light I reference getting up in the middle of the night in our bedroom there's a smoke detector way up on the wall can't reach it when I have to change the battery way up the wall has a tiny little green light. You can see it all night long. It's light. It's not a great light. It's small. And then I have an alarm clock. That gives off a little more light. And then if you wander out in the hallway into the kitchen, there's the refrigerator with an automatic nightlight. That's a little bit more light. And every once in a while, one of the younger kids will get up out of bed. And I have to stumble to the other end of the house, so I pick up my phone and travel to the other end, of, other end of the house. And I made the mistake of hitting the home button to cast some light on the situation, and, but decided I needed to activate the flash with the light on the phone. Had the orientation of my phone in the direction of the small child. As soon as the light came on, light shone, filled the room. child was in great light. (laughs) It's a blinding light. It's a light you can't ignore. Everything is revealed. This is a, a great light. John 1, chapter 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made, was Not anything made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This great light is a light that cannot be overcome. Cannot and will not be overcome. So darkness becomes light. Verse 3. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So gloom here becomes gladness. Becomes joy. It's a kind of joy that makes the heart leap. The Hebrew word here actually means to run around in a circle. You have so much joy that your body is compelled to move. Can you imagine this pressing in of an internal gloom now being replaced with a joy so indescribable that you can't sit still? In that regard, I would submit that all the children here have probably more joy than we'll ever see in our lifetime. This is what the coming of Christ will bring, a joy unspeakable. First Peter chapter 1 references that. This is an unspeakable joy. And do we have joy? You know, a lot of times it's... Uh, I've found myself. I've asked this question: Why am I not more joyful? <laughs> right? What believer says I don't have enough joy? Where's the joy? Right? I haven't attained enough joy. When you realize that the gloom, the internal darkness that has crept in, because of the outside external darkness, that you're accustomed to. When a light has been shed on that gloom, you will have joy. Verses 4 and 5. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. A sense of anguish becomes a liberty. So we have darkness into light. We have gloom into joy. We have anguish into liberty. God has broken them all with the coming of Christ, and that's why there is now joy. That is why we have moved from being pressed into having freedom. This is a massive transformation. This is a massive transformation of outlook because that is what this passage was intended to do. We are to experience a transformation of outlook, even though our external circumstances haven't changed right even though you dwell in a dark land you have seen a great light the outer circumstances haven't changed the inner reality is dramatically transformed your outlook has been transformed and let me submit that the relief here comes from the fact that what it's written in verse 6 for to us a child is born to us a son is given it's also written for us, a child has been born to us, a son has been given. Okay, we see past tense. This is interesting because it's almost so much guaranteed. It's most so assuredly to happen that it's written here in the past tense. A son has been given, a child has been born. It's already been determined in the mind of God and God's people. So if you were to walk in and say, the dishes have been done, yet they sit there, but knowing full well that the dishes will be done, a son has been given. It will come to pass. It is guaranteed. This is a certain hope of the coming Christ in present darkness. We can abide in his light. This was true for them and a great comfort for the people of Isaiah's day. Can you imagine? Reading, a son has been given child has been born this is astounding this is worth our attention and our affection those who have eyes to see and ears to hear throughout history there's been God's remnant as Isaiah prophesies about We see words like the Lord has his own and his people in dark times have held on to this promise and have found great comfort and strength in it and this passage is meant here to give God's people great comfort and great strength. And I would even point out that in our day, as we read, a son has been given, a child has been born. He has established his government and his kingdom is established, is growing, is filling the earth. His light is indeed com- compelling and commanding. So, to close this morning, a few points of application. The first point is. How do we do this? How do we live in a light, in a great light? What does that mean? It doesn't mean turning your light on your phone, walking around. Three things this morning. The first one is fear God. If we turn back to the eighth chapter in Isaiah, we'll read, starting in verse 11 for the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people saying do not call conspiracy all that people all this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread but the Lord of hosts him you shall honor as holy let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Fear God, right? This is what we're to do is to fear God you've heard the phrase fight fire with fire you fight fear with fear that's biblical you replace fear with a greater fear you replace what apparently seems reasonable to be fearful of with what in reality is the only thing to be feared right it's only apparent you know it's only apparent that you should fear what's going on around you it's easy that's easy that's external darkness Right that's external darkness creeping in gloom anguish it appears to be ultimate ra- reality it's not your outlook is distorted if projected by darkness gloom and anguish it's distorted and if it's not projected by light joy and liberty we have a great light matthew 10:28 jesus said and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. All the world against him means nothing. And how do you fear God? You realize he's holy. You know, the land in which Moses walked was made holy in God's presence. The Ark of the Covenant, in the room that it was placed in the temple, it was called the holy place. Right? Set apart. In Isaiah 6, in his commission, what does Isaiah say when confronted in the presence of the Lord and his holiness? Woe is me, for I am lost. Job also says, I am of small account when put in the presence of God. Woe is me, I am in small. To fear God and regard him as holy is not to shrink back, though it's not a resignation, but the proclamation of the Holy One, able to do and accomplish His purposes. You know, the Lord set apart, high and exalted, nothing in all of creation able to match His glory, nothing in all of creation able to match His power, nothing in all of creation able to match His purity. This is God holy. Fear a holy God. Church, we are called to be set apart. We are called to be holy. Secondly, cling to his word, verses 15 and 16 and also in verse 20 of chapter 8, starting in 15, and many shall stumble on it, they shall fall and be broken, they shall be snared and taken, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples, up to verse 20, to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Cling to his word. Now this has a personal meaning, and I'll share this because when you cling to his word, things change, right? I admittedly early on, in my Christian walk, dismiss the word of God, right? Would take it in small chunks, small bites here and there through a quick devotional. That's enough of God's word. A little passage here, a little passage there. That doesn't do it. That will not chase away the darkness. That's not enough light. And only until recently have I been convicted. You know, it starts with having children, having a family, leading your family as a father. What becomes important? The word of God. Cling to the word of God. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true. What's true? Right? This is true. Whatever is honorable. What's honorable? God Whatever is just, what's just? The Lord The plumb line of his righteousness and his justice. Whatever is pure, what's pure? God's pure. Whatever is lovely, what's lovely? The Lord Whatever is commendable, what's commendable? God Right. Are we commendable? No. If there is any excellence, what is excellence? Lord is excellent, right? Christ is excellent. His light is excellent. If there is anything worthy of praise, what is worthy of praise? Lord, think about these things. Brothers and sisters of Christ, we have fallen powerfully, powerfully short of thinking of these things. We have succumbed to external darkness, turning into gloom of our souls and hearts, being caught in a place where we are bound, restricted, unable to escape, begging, yearning for ways out. Cling to his word. Fear God, cling to his word, submit to his kingship. The reason darkness becomes light the reason gloom becomes joy the reason anguish becomes liberty and freedom is because you are no longer you have been released from the bondage by submitting to this new king this king delivers and in his deliverance our submission and obedience to him is the ultimate liberty the reason that these things have happened is God's people are submitting to the government of his king he mentions here in Isaiah the throne of David over his kingdom Jesus is king and if you want to have his joy and his light and his freedom, you have to submit to his kingship. Hallelujah. We must call him Lord. You don't just get to take Jesus part way, right? And just say, I want you as Savior, but not as Lord. His people are submitted to him. You see an example of this in 1 Peter chapter 3, where we see suffering, suffering, suffering. It's a part of normal Christian life. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Set him apart as Lord. This arises from our submission, and it is the reason for the hope that is within, right? That's what Paul, or Peter, goes on to say in chapter 3. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. He is your Lord. And in our call to submit to his kingship, May we ask him what he would have us do. Right? Cling to his word, fear God, ask him what he would have us do. If Christ is your savior, then he should be your king. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that we can proclaim that you are king and you are Lord and you are holy. Lord, we repent, I repent, Lord, of allowing the darkness, the influence of the outside, what feels like impending fearful situation, to cloud and darken my soul and my heart. Lord, so much so that it's sometimes impossible to see a light, but you are a great light, a commanding, a compelling light that demands of us, Lord, obedience to your scripture to your word, to our king. Father, would you just move among our hearts, help us to see, Lord, with light. Help us to go up from here, Lord, wanting to fear you more, wanting to be in your word more. Lord, wanting to revere you to the highest esteem we recognize that we are the land of zebulun the land of naphtali unworthy of your presence unworthy of your coming unworthy to be saved and to be rescued but yet lord you have you would come as a baby when you started your ministry lord you went to that region to save those that were in contempt i was the one in contempt lord you've rescued me you've rescued us And we thank you, and it calls us, Lord, to want to worship you forever and forevermore. In your name we pray, amen.